This morning as we come to the 112th Psalm, we're going to talk about the relationship between the sun and the moon. The sun that shines with all his glory and the moon that catches that light and reflects it back. This morning we're going to talk about the sun and the moon and we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, let me remind you where we were last week, Psalm 111. And if you're with us, this is what I hope you'll remember. I hope you remember that Psalm 111 was a psalm, is a psalm of praise. So as we worked through the psalm, we saw the psalmist and he said, I'm going to give wholehearted praise to God. And then we worked in verses 2 through 9 and he unpacked who God is and why he's worthy of praise. And so we looked at the greatness of his character, that everything that God does is right and good. We considered the greatness of his work in salvation, his grace and his mercy and what he's done to rescue people like us from our sins. Praise be to God. We considered the greatness of his words and his promises that, that God's spoken and everything he said is true and everything that he says that will come to pass will in fact come to pass. And these are the things that the psalmist rehearses and says he's worthy of praise because of who he is, because of what he's done, he is worthy of all of our praise. This morning we come to 112, and it's a psalm that is very much related to Psalm 111. And the first way we see the connection is by the way they're composed, and hopefully you've seen the notes and how they open up, and you've got the two psalms there side by side. I told you last week that Psalm 111 has 23 lines. The first line... It says, praise the Lord. And then the next 22 lines in the original language in Hebrew form an acrostic. So the first letter of each line begins with a letter from the Hebrew alphabet from beginning to end in order. Now we come to Psalm 112 and it has the exact same structure. It begins, praise the Lord, and then we have 22 lines, each beginning with successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So they have this in common, and even if that was all they had in common, pretty cool. But there's more. If you go through the two Psalms, what you'll find is there's a lot of repeated words and repeated themes. And in fact, if you set them side by side like I've done for you, you'll see that some of the lines are complete mirror images of one another. And if you spend more time with the Psalm and you read the lines, what you'll see is some of them almost answer one another. Some serve as contrasts to one another, and many of them are similar in theme. Let me just give you some examples. The first one's obvious. Praise the Lord, exactly the same in both. Look down at verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty in his work, and his righteousness endures forever. That's in chapter 11. Look over at verse 3 of chapter 12. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. That last line, obviously, right? But even that first line, look at that. Splendor and majesty, wealth and riches. There's some similarities there. You can see another one in verse 4. Chapter 11, 111, the Lord is gracious and merciful. And then the exact same line in 112, he is gracious and merciful and righteous. I think we see a, a similarity of theme in verse 5. 
That first line of 111, verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. And then verse 5 of 112, it is well with a man who deals generously and lends. So we see God the provider giving. And then in the next chapter, this generosity. Similar themes. We could go line by line, and I hope you will. This, I had fun this week kind of just like considering how maybe not every one of them, but so many of them have some similarities. And the Psalms are a lot alike, but there's also ways in which they're very different. And what we already said is Psalm 111 is a psalm of praise. It's about God. It's describing his character and who he is and what he's done. And then here's where it gets really interesting. Psalm 112 isn't about God. Psalm 112 is a psalm about the godly person. It's a psalm about a person who lives the way that God has called us to live. So we see these parallel descriptions used for God in 111 and applied to his people in 112. And I'll have to admit, after preaching so vigorously about the righteousness of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God last week, and then seeing these things in 112, it gave me pause. Because I said last week that his righteousness endures forever, which means he is right and everything he does is right and always will be right. And now we see this parallel line in a psalm about the godly person. What do we do with that? Well, I think what's happening here, what the psalmist is communicating is the same thing that the Bible communicates over and over. What we know is that as God's people, we are called to strive to be like him. To love the way he loves, to forgive the way he forgives, to serve the way he serves. And I think what we have in these two psalms is a picture of how the person of God should be a reflection of God himself. I have to credit Charles Spurgeon with the illustration. He says Psalm 111 is like the sun. Shining. Revealing God. Psalm 112 is like the moon that catches that light and reflects it out. So what Psalm 111 does is it takes our eyes and we see God and we say, look at him, he's righteous in every way, he's gracious in every way, he's merciful in every way. And 112 is a reminder that as we see God for who he is, we're called to be like him, to be reflectors. As we go through the, the psalm, the psalm's really answering these questions for us. What does it look like to live a godly life? And it also encourages us with this, that those who live a godly life, those who reflect God in the world, will be blessed. So how do we take that vision of 111 and allow it to change us? How do we become good reflectors? That's what we consider this morning. So... Psalm 112, you can follow along there on the page or in your Bible. Hear the word of God. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. 
It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Everything he says is true, and his promises will never fail. So Psalm 112 is a psalm about the person of godliness, what it means to live a godly life, what we can expect as we live lives of godliness. But we shouldn't jump in so quickly that we miss that first line. I don't think it's a throwaway line. He begins the psalm, praise the Lord. As we, as we go through the psalm, we're going to talk a lot about, about us and about what it means for us to live God's way and about the blessings that God gives to those who live in godliness. But at the very beginning, I think the psalmist is pushing us to consider this. The Lord is the one who's worthy of praise. Anything we do, that's to the praise of his glory. Anything we receive, it's not because we've earned it. It's because of the goodness of God. I think as we go through this psalm, we have to remind ourselves over and over. God is the one who saves. God is the one who brought us out of slavery. God is the one who made and keeps his promises. Everything we have is from him. Anything good that we have in us is a reflection of what he's done in our hearts. So as we read through the psalm, if you see anything that even remotely describes you, Praise the Lord. If there's anything good in us, Paul says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. I think we should have to stop there and, and recognize that. And, and for those of you who maybe are new to the Bible or new to church, here's what I want you to hear. Because we're going to go through this psalm and you may think, that's what I have to do. And can I just tell you? There is nothing that you can do that's going to earn right standing for you before God. You can't be good enough. When the Bible talks about living God's way and being God's kind of people, the only way we do that is by having received a new heart from God. See, the call of God isn't first to live a certain way. In fact, the Bible says you cannot. The first call from God to you and to all of us is, to confess your sin, to confess your inability, to confess your need. And see, Jesus came and died on the cross. We believe that's why he came, because we can't do it. So he came and he died so that we can be forgiven and be given a new heart. This morning, we're gonna talk a lot about what God has called us to do, but, but don't be mistaken. What you do is not what brings you into the right standing with God. Praise the Lord. It's all of him. The psalm does describe this godly person. And it actually begins the same way 111 ended. 
If you look back at 111 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So the psalmist has described God, and then at the end, last week, he, he pivoted, and he started talking about the response we have. If God is who he is, then we should live with a fear of him. We should have this right posture towards him. That's where we ended, and then he picks up Psalm 112 on that theme and then expands on it. So verse 1 verse of chapter 112, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. So it's a declaration. The one who fears the Lord is blessed. And most of the psalm is unpacking what that means, that the godly are blessed. But, but first, let's not move too fast past, excuse me, whoo, let's not go too fast past what he says about this person, right? Who is the one who's blessed? I think there's at least two things that he tells us. The blessed person is first one who fears the Lord. And we talked about this a little bit last week. What is the fear of the Lord? I think it's a, a mixture of awe and respect of God with, combined with a sense of our own lowliness. We recognize who we are and, and who he is and the chasm there. I don't think it means that we're to run and hide. It's not that kind of fear, but there is a sense that when we see his holiness, we do feel this sense to recoil, recognizing that he's almighty and we're sinful and we deserve nothing but his wrath. There's a sense in which we should always have a fear of God. Now, we know that through Christ, he has drawn us near. We've been accepted, we're called his children, but even then, we still must never forget who he is. A godly person is a person who sees God rightly and always has an appropriate sense of awe, respect, reverence, and fear. And the reality is, I think, if we get this right, if we see God rightly and we see ourselves rightly, so much else about what we're called to falls into place. Think about this. When we don't have a healthy fear of God, what's the inclination? We think too much of ourselves, don't we? When we don't have a healthy fear of God, we can be tempted to think that we know better than God because we allow him to be lowered and ourselves to be exalted. And we think, what does he really know? Is he really good? When we don't have a healthy fear of God, we may know his commands, but disregard them far too easily, forgetting who it is who's given the commands. Maybe we don't see any immediate consequences, so we get comfortable in our disobedience. A good recognition of the fear of God solves that, doesn't it? We feel the weight of his commands. We know the significant that what he said is good and right and should be obeyed. We don't have to look very far to recognize we live in a world that does not have a fear of God. It's evident in our society. And as the people of God, we should be distinct as those who stand up and say, no, there is a God who should be feared, who should be honored, who should be respected, and that changes everything. It means that we cannot take sin lightly. This psalm is about the person who has an appropriate fear of God. 
It's also about a person who finds joy in the commands of God. I love this because we could just stop at the first part and say, I will tremble and I will obey and I won't like it. But because of who he is, I'm going to toe the line. But that's not what's described here, is it? We see a person who has an appropriate fear of God and yet greatly delights in his commands. You see that joy there? What we have isn't a person who's just scared into submission, but we see someone who has both a right posture before God and a right response to the things he said. He finds joy in the commands of God, which that's not natural, is it? It's not natural for us to find joy and delight in obedience. It's more natural to find joy and delight in doing things our own way. But when our hearts are changed by God, when we see him for who he is, and we see not only his holiness and his might, but his compassion and his grace, we recognize there's joy to be had here. There's great joy in believing and obeying. Everything he has said is good, and everything he commands leads to good. I was thinking, maybe, wonder if this comes to mind for you. When you think about joy in the commands of God, Remember what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. If we love God, we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You see that, how that changes it? I'm going to love him, so I'll keep his commands. Or I love him, so I'll... No, it's we love God, we keep his commands, and his commands are a joy. They're not a burden. I delight to do his will. So in this first verse, we see this description of the godly man. A man who fears the Lord and delights in his commands. And we're told that this person is blessed. And verses 2 through 9 kind of unpack that. We continually to see a description of the man coupled alongside the blessings. And I'll be honest with you that as I say the phrase, blessed by God, I recognize that it's often misused. This is pretty common. If, if, if we have a good day and things go well, then we say we're blessed. And so we take a picture, we post it, hashtag blessed, right? And it's true, God gives good things. And maybe all those things that we have hashtagged as blessed are in fact blessings from God because every good thing comes from him. But perhaps what we miss, maybe we have too narrow a view because there's lots of things that we wouldn't post pictures of that come from the hand of a good God that can be described as blessings. I think what we're going to see as we keep reading is that during times of suffering, the hold and the security of God is a blessing. So there could be someone going through unbelievable times of pain. Hashtag blessed, right? Because the one who fears God, who delights in his commands, knows the one in whom he can trust, even when the world is crashing around him. Blessing doesn't always look the way Instagram says that it should. Something else I want to push us to consider as we walk through these verses is that every characteristic here is coupled with a character trait of godliness. And if we're not careful, we could read this psalm this way. If I do that, I'll get this. 
I'll do that, so I'll get this. And then I'll do this, so I'll get that. Very transactional. And I think completely misses the point of the psalm. This psalm is not an offer of payment. Do this and you'll get this. It's a description of a godly person. And God's response to that person. And maybe we're splitting hairs, but I think this is a significant hair. That this psalm isn't about what motivates our godliness, but about the way God blesses godliness. I think that's an important distinction. And I think that the truly righteous person would never think, I'm doing this, so I'll get this. The truly righteous heart obeys God, delights in his commands. And this psalm tells us that God honors those who live this way. So maybe that's helpful. I think that was a distinction that helped, helped me as I considered this psalm. But we see this list of blessings mixed with godly action, starting in verse 2. He says, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. One of the things I hope to do as we walk through the scriptures is to come to verses that we may read in our own time and think, huh, and then we move on, <laughs> right? And this is our chance together to slow down and say, what does that mean? And I think when we come to a verse particularly like these, verses two and three, there's two ditches that we may be inclined to fall into. See, there's some who take verses like verses two and three and build an entire theological system around them. And it goes like this. If you follow God, you will be successful and your kids will be successful. And if you follow God, you'll be rich and your kids will be rich. So follow God and watch the successes and the riches roll in. And if it doesn't happen, then you must not be as godly as you say that you are. And we may snicker, but that's a, a message that's proclaimed in some form, sometimes watered down, in pulpits every week. Honor God, and your life will be easier. Which I think is true, by the way, but not the way it's being defined here. That's one ditch, the ditch of full prosperity gospel. Here's the ditch you're probably more inclined to if you're like me. The second ditch is to stay as far away as we can from saying anything that sounds anything like a prosperity gospel. So we recognize as we read the Bible that God responds to our obedience. And he does, in fact, bless those who obey. He gives good to those who live according to his standards. And yet we recognize that not everyone who's godly is successful by the world's standards. Not everyone who's godly has successful children. And not everyone who is godly gets physical wealth and riches. And so we want to run as far away from any implication of that as we can. Which I think is another ditch that we have to stay out of. Because we don't want to underestimate that God does good to those who follow him. So what do we do with these verses? So we try to stay on the road and not end up in the ditch. Give me a couple things that may help. First, we should recognize that this verse was written to a people living in a nation under an old covenant. Right? God's writing to a people for whom he had promised land and power and victory. Right? Their system, 
their economy was a little bit different than ours. This is a theocracy. This is a, a nation ruled and governed by God. And he has made significant promises to them and called them to obedience. And in their case, very literally, as they obeyed, they would receive land and the fulfillment of promises of God. So there's an extent into which this verse is a little bit different for us in the new covenant than it was for them in the old. And we could just leave it at that. But at the same time, I don't think we should just write off this verse as completely unapplicable to us. Because what we know is that as we live God's way, as we live upright and righteous, as we apply wisdom, there is blessing, isn't there? As we read the Proverbs and we are good stewards, as we are generous and hardworking, as we live God's way, there is a certain measure of success that comes with that. Now, maybe not always the way we would define it, but God honors those who obey. What we see in these verses is also a generational promise that your kids will be mighty. I think the scriptures also tell us that as we are faithful, that does affect our kids. Is it a guarantee? It's not. But I think we should see this verse and hear the reminder that God blesses obedience. We also recognize what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You hear that? So often we are concerned about physical things. What does he say? Fear the Lord, delight in his commands. Seek his kingdom first. Which means work hard and do what he's called you to do. And trust that he cares for those who are his. God provides, and I think we see that. Maybe verses that are worth considering to, to think about, or to continue thinking about. What we also see here is that these blessings are for the righteous. We see there at the end of verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. It's a description of a person who's living according to God's standards. But this is that first line that we come to and we think, but that's what we said about God, isn't it? His righteousness endures forever. How can we slide that over into the description of us? And we recognize, first of all, that any righteousness we have is a gift from God. And the only way our righteousness endures forever is because his righteousness endures forever. And I think we see it within the context and we recognize we don't do this perfectly, but because of who Christ is and what he's done, we've been given a new heart. We are recipients and imitators of him living according to and through what he's given us. And through Christ, it is true. We stand in righteousness that never ends. It's because of him that we have the ability to live godly lives. And I think we see that continuing in verse 4. That second part of verse 4, the godly person is described as gracious and merciful and righteous. Last week in that same line in chapter 111, verse 4, we saw that God is gracious and merciful. And I told you last week, God gives you things you don't deserve. And you have not been given things that you do deserve. Praise God. He is full of grace and he is full of mercy. Now here's the challenge, church. 
The godly person is called to be gracious and merciful. You're called to give people things that they don't deserve and to not give them all the things that they deserve. The godly person is like the moon reflecting the sun. And as we've received grace, we extend grace. And if we, as we have received mercy, we extend mercy. This is the description of the godly person. And I wonder, we all say, I want to be like Christ. Okay. Are you gracious like he's gracious? Are you merciful like he's merciful? It's a high calling, isn't it? Yet it is our calling. Oh, and there's great blessing for those who are his and live his way. We see there at the beginning of verse 4, look at the promise to the upright. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. I told you earlier that living God's way doesn't always mean Instagrammable moments. This verse acknowledges seasons of darkness, doesn't it? There will be times of darkness. That's no surprise. You've been there. Maybe you're there today. But we have here is the acknowledgement that as God's people, there is light. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. God is light and he will always shine. It's reminiscent of Psalm 27, verse 1. The psalmist says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's why we read earlier together from Psalm 139. Thinking about 20 years since 9-11, these verses seem relevant. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night. I wonder if you've had that season. Darkness has covered me. Even the light, even, even my light is like the night. Yet even the darkness is not dark to you. To you, the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Light dawns in darkness. And this is the blessing of being a person who fears God and delights in his commands. That even in our darkness, we see the light of Christ. Even in our darkness, we see hope. There are great blessings for those who live God's way, who fear him and keep his commands. Go on in verse 5. We're told that the godly are blessed for their generosity and care for others. Or if you read your notes carefully, the gold, goldie, so I misspelled it there. The godly are blessed for their generosity in wise business. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends. Last week, we talked about God is the provider. God gives food to his people. And we talked about the, the wandering in the wilderness and the gifts of manna and quail. God is one who gives generously, who provides for those who are in need. And now we see that we're called to be the same. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, which are two different things, by the way. To deal generously is to give without any request for return. To lend 
is to help someone in need until they have the ability to repay. But notice the second line there, who conducts his affairs with justice. So we lend fairly. The point is that we're to be compassionate and kind towards those in need. We're not to run away from those in need, but to run towards them. The way God has provided so richly and kindly for us, we should deal kindly and compassionately with others. And we see the blessing in verse 5. It is well with this man. It is well with a man who deals generously and lends. Part of that blessing may come in this life. But surely we will all be greatly repaid in the time to come. It is well with those who live the way God has called us to live. As we come to verse 6, we move into a, a section of, of three stanzas that all make it clear that in life we will need strength. And that the blessing for the godly is the gift of stability. We see that starting in verse 6. The righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. The righteous won't be moved. Or we could say the righteous will never be shaken. It's a positive statement. It's a promise of stability. But don't miss the implication. What's the implication when we say you will be stable? The implication is there may be times when life pushes hard. There may be times when you wonder if you will keep standing. But the promise for the godly is that God will hold you fast. One of my favorite passages of all, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Even if the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, Selah. The world may crash around us, but we have someone who is strong enough to hold us. This is a blessing for the godly. The recognition that we are not alone and that we do have one who is stronger than us. We see something similar in verse 7. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Look back across your page to chapter 11. The same verse, the same line in chapter 11. This description of God, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. This description of who God is, he's spoken, his words can be trusted. He never changes, his promises never fail. He is faithful and he'll do what he said, which is why... We can believe verses 7 and 8 of 112, isn't it? Because of who God is, we can say, I don't have to be afraid of bad news. My heart can be firm, trusting the Lord. My heart can be steady and unafraid. Now, does this mean that Christians, good, godly people, are robots without emotions? And it just hits us and runs off. Now, keep reading the Psalms, right? Read about the godly man who weeps in bed. 
There will be times of grief. There will be times of uncertainty. And this is not a call to be stoic and unaffected. We probably need more people who will weep. But in our grief and in our pain and in times of confusion, there can be this underneath. I don't have to fear. Through my tears and through my grief, I know that I can trust him. We may not know what's going on, but we have this assurance God does. We may not know what tomorrow brings, but we know the one who holds tomorrow. We may not know how to face another day, but God's mercies are new every morning. This is what it means to fear the Lord. We trust that he's sovereign and good and that he can be trusted even on the worst days. The godly are not afraid of bad news. Their heart is firm, trusting the Lord. But consider this, church. If this is a good season for you, this is the season for preparation for suffering. This is the day to see God rightly and to be convinced that he's trustworthy and good and powerful. Because if we wait till the day when tragedy strikes, it may be hard to believe. So in seasons of joy and in seasons of ease, go deep. Look into God's word, see his face. Believe with all your heart that he is good and that he can be trusted. So when the day of trouble comes, you can say, it hurts, but I'm not afraid. I know the one in whom I believed. The godly person knows and meditates daily on the character and the goodness of God so that his soul is ready and trusting the Lord. Verses six to eight encourage us to see God rightly and to respond well. And there's a transition in verse nine. It goes back to the idea of generosity and compassion. He says, the godly has distributed freely and has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Again, this description of the godly, the one who is righteousness, who has received God's righteousness, whose righteousness will endure forever, the one who will be honored by God, says this is a person who has distributed freely and has given to the poor. The parallel line speaks of the redemption of God. Now we see that just as God is kind to those in need, we are called to be kind and compassionate. Consider the kindness of God. Consider the compassion of God. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We see the example in God, don't we? There was no, no one more poor than us, no one more needy than us. And there was no one with more resources than God. And he was in no debt to us. 
And yet, for our sake, he who was rich became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. This is our example. Because we've received what we did not deserve, the compassion, the generosity of God, we, as reflectors of him, are called to be generous and kind and compassionate. Now, to be clear, he died far more than to give us an example of generosity. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. And yet, it is an example of the way that we are called to interact with the world around us. And we know this is true. We know this is a call to generosity because Paul takes this verse and he uses it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Real quick, the context there, Paul is taking up an offering for the poor. He's trying to teach the Corinthians a good theology of giving and of generosity. Let me just read a portion of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, the point is this. It's a great line in scripture. What's going on? The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I think this helps us to interpret verses like verses 2 and 3, doesn't it? The blessing on God, blessing of God. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Notice the blessing here, what he gives, isn't necessarily prosperity, but the ability to do good works. So, And then we get this quote from Psalm 112. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for, for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That's the blessing, the harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, so you can be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's your homework, to go and to read that and to consider it carefully. But I wanted you to see how Paul takes this verse from Psalm 112 and encourages us in generosity so that we will receive the blessing of God, which is what? The ability to do good works and to be righteous and to abound. As we give, God provides blessings, some physical and some spiritual, but God always honors those who live well. God is the sun. We have received his kindness. We're to be the moon reflecting his compassion and kindness to the world. We do that one way through tangible needs. We give food to the hungry and help to the poor. The greatest way we show the kindness and compassion of God is by telling people, of the hope of forgiveness, the grace of God, reconciliation. In 2 to 9, we have this picture of a godly person. It helps us to see what it looks like to live a godly life. It describes the blessings that come to those who live God's way. And then, just like at the end of Psalm 111, there was a transition. In this final verse of Psalm 112, there's another transition. In 111, he talked about how the godly person responds to the character of God. In 112, he talks about how the wicked person responds to the character of the godly. The wicked man sees it and is angry. 
He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. That word desire, it's the same word that's used back in Genesis of a desire for a fruit. The desire of the wicked will lead to death. There's a lot of similarities between Psalm 112 and Psalm 1. It starts at the beginning, blessed is the one who fears the Lord, and it ends with the description of the wicked. Let me just remind you of Psalm 1, and I think it helps us to understand Psalm 112. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That man, the godly man, is like a tree planted by streams of water and yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What we see in Psalm 1 and Psalm 112 is that there's two kinds of people. The godly who receive the blessings of God in this life and in eternity, and the wicked, who though they may look prosperous and experience a measure of prosperity now, in the end will face destruction. And maybe you're here and you think, surely I'm in the righteous Surely I'm among the godly. And in fact, as I think about most of the people I know, there's that one guy at work, he's probably wicked, but, but there's not many that I know who fall in that category of the wicked. And if that's what you're thinking, you've misunderstood what we're, what's being said here. At the end of the day, it's not about what we do at all. It's all about what God has done in us. So those who are counted among the righteous are those who have confessed their sins It's not those who have attained righteousness on their own, but those who have been granted righteousness through God in Christ. And church, I say with a heavy heart and much grief, many, if not most, of the people you see day in and day out are among the wicked. And perhaps you're here this morning and you fit more squarely in verse 10 than 1 through 9. Can I give you good news? For those of you who may need to hear it, and good news that you can share with those who you you know, right standing with God isn't attained through right living. Jesus came and he died because we couldn't earn it. We didn't deserve it, but he died so that all who repent of their sins and put their trust in him will be saved. He gives us a new heart The scripture says he takes that heart of stone and gives us the heart of flesh and he enables us to be his kind of people. We become the people of Psalm 112 because of what he has done and then as we live in the strength that he supplies, he blesses us now and forever. It's all of him. Praise the Lord. Which brings us back to where we began. I made a big deal last week and told you Psalm 111 is a psalm of praise and perhaps Psalm 112 is too. Because everything that's said in Psalm 112 about what we're called to do and about what God does, it's all about Him. It's His righteousness in us. Praise Him for His grace. Praise Him for His forgiveness. Praise Him 
that if you're in Christ, you do not have to fear the fate of the wicked. Praise him for his righteousness imparted to you. Praise him with your lips. Praise him with your lives. Not simply to gain blessing, but because he's worthy. He's the sun. Let's be the moon.